You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. So, Chris Roberts, welcome. You're a journalist. You've written for many publications, including Classic Rock, The Guardian, Melody Maker, Enemy, Sounds, The Daily Telegraph and Empire, amongst many others. Um, you were the editor of Idol Worship, a collection of writings on music by Bono, Nick Hornby, Thurston Moore, and so on. And it was hailed in the New York Times as the most original book about rock and roll ever. And you've published books on Michael Jackson, Tom Jones, ABBA and Lou Reed, amongst uh, many others. First of all, I want to talk about you and your own upbringing and the cultural influences on you um, during your early childhood. Oh, right. Well, I mean, uh, I think that music really hit me when I was around 12, 13. I think that's the classic age where you kind of start to hear music and it you think, what is this wonderful world that is, you know, everything is new and exciting and impossibly glamorous. Um, so I grew up in North Wales in real, a small town uh, where not a lot of it not a lot of excitement happened, you know, you'd read about London or wherever and think that sounded incredible. Um, so as the kind of, I suppose, when I was 12, 13, it was Bowie and Bolan and, and, and Roxy Music were coming through and glam rock. And that just seemed so otherworldly and fantastical, you know, and um, it was, the, the music was great, but it was also that world of these ridiculously glamorous, impossible unlifelike characters, you know, which Bolan and Bowie were, they were larger than life, they were, colourful, they were eccentric, uh, flamboyant, and it just seemed like another world, and it seemed very, very attractive and interesting. So that drew you into the world of music, I think, which gave you an escape from somewhat humdrum life in a, in a small town in Britain, you know. Um, I mean, it's so. interesting you say that, because when I was 13, I was 13 in 1972, and Bowie was uh, my hero back then, and he represented this other world, and as a, as a insecure gay teenager he represented even more than that sort of thing he represented what I felt was where I belonged was did you have that sense of the music and this group of people that liked that type of music were where you belonged and not in Wales <laughs> yes or at least I hoped to you know I aspired to it was it, it just seemed it, it seemed like a, a, a world that I had no hope of ever entering, but but eventually you kind of find a side door in. Um, and yes, it just seemed more exciting and artistic and poetic than than the kind of, yeah, than the run-of-the-mill world. I mean, if people who, who perhaps are too young to remember the 70s, there were only four TV channels or three, you know, a lot of black and white. And it seemed like when Glamrock came along, in fact, Dave Hill from Slade said to me in an interview once, glam rock was was when britain turned from black and white to color you know and and that uh very much seems to seem to be the case it exploded um my friends at school and i would just we, we would save our pocket money to buy telegram sam or gene genie or or ballroom blitz and we by the way we had no realization at that age that bowie bull and roxy were cooler than the sweet and mud we, we thought everything was just marvelous you know <laughs> and, and i still love those records of course they're very visceral you know and and adrenalized and exciting so yeah that was a breakthrough and then of course from that you graduate as you get a bit older you kind of get into a bit of soul music maybe some al green some marvin gay and and then we had disco and punk rock and it was the perfect time to be growing up with music i think because so many exciting genres and artists were, were happening how much value did your parents put on a creative life? Because my parents would, would say to me, you know, like, well, it's all right to like it, but don't work in that area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they didn't really like it. They didn't like the kind of the, the the clothes that were worn on top of the pops, you know, which were like, you know, who are these weirdos? Um, but they just seemed like Martians to us, which we thought was fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, you know, parents were very much of the get a proper job generation, you know, um, this pop music fad won't last, you know, they weren't um, interested really. I think they had, a, a, you know, maybe a Vera Lynn record and a Glenn Miller record. They were, you know, older for the years, bless them, they're lovely people, but the music wasn't their thing. So it was very much friends at school and I were, were uh, caught up in the infectious uh, pull of this music. So how did you get into a journalistic um, life? Was it music that pulled you in that direction or did you actually get into sort of, you know, journalism and then go into being a music journalist? 
Yeah, very much the music, really. I, I, I did a degree in English at university, and then I was unemployed, to be honest, for ages. I mean, an English degree, what do you actually do with that? You know, <laughs> it took a while to realise. But then I was going to gigs in London by this point, and um, I loved the music press. I loved reading the music press. I loved Enemy and Melody Maker, and I loved, you know, the more pretentious the writing, the better. I just lapped it up. Um, so I, if I remember rightly, I sent on spec, I, I did a review of Iggy Pop at the venue in Victoria. And my girlfriend at the time was saying, well, you could do that. You could write for those, get off your backside and, and do it. You know. So I sent a review of Iggy Pop live to the music papers and a couple of them got in touch. I went with Sounds Magazine, first of all. Uh, and then I did a couple of years there, learned the ropes, the interviews, reviews and so on. Um, and then I went to Melody Maker full time as a staff writer in a very good era for Melody Maker when it was doing very well and very hip at the time. I had great years there uh, and then went freelance and wrote books and still, you know, write for all sorts of people. But yeah, that Melody Maker era was kind of making your name time and the, you know, the cool indie bands were coming through and um, uh, that sort of late 80s, going into early 90s. Um, so we went to sort of rock, rock bands like the Pixies, My Bloody Valentine, that kind of era. Um, and but yeah, great time. Yeah, really successful magazine at the time, and lots of people were reading it. You know, pre-internet, so the music press was the only place you got your information on on music from. So, yeah. Well, let's get uh, to this book, The Velvet Underground. How did that come about? You'd already written a book, as I said earlier, on Lou Reed, but how did this one um, come about? Yeah, the uh, I enjoyed doing the Lou Reed one, and then I'd just done a book on Elton John for this particular publisher, uh, which I'd done kind of as a as a job, if I'm honest, you know, I, I can take or leave Elton John, but it was a, a job of work. And they said, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I, I'd probably like to do something on the Velvet Underground. And so they backed me on, which is great. Um, and then I could use, I did three interviews with Lou Reed over the years, which were, which were great, you know, great content. He's a fantastic, charismatic character. Um, and this meant that I could weave that in and talk about uh, the the era of the Velvets with kind of Andy Warhol and, and the factory. And I, I'm very interested in all that, the, the Andy Warhol factory and Edie Sedgwick and the whole kind of New York scene. I always had, always had a thing about New York, a bit relating to being from a small town. New York seemed again in films and, and books, it just seemed like this, and on record, it just seemed like this most, you know, intriguing, dark, clever, arty place. And I wanted to um, write more about New York, I suppose. And the Velvets were very much a New York band. Um, and you have four, five really interesting characters there with Lou Reed, John Cale, uh, Nico, uh, Sterling Morrison and Mo Tucker, perhaps less interesting to, you know, in terms of charisma. But uh, yeah, it seemed like a, a topic worth uh, exploring. And the songs and the records have sort of infinite layers and depths that you can get into and dig into. Um, I also wanted to talk about Lou Reed's solo career, because that's a particular passion of mine. I love his solo albums. I know that's most people don't really, they, you know, they love the Velvets and they think Lou did a couple of good albums and the, less it, and the rest is rubbish. But I, I'm really into Lou Reed's solo career, or 80% of it. So I wanted to get into that as well. Um, so, yeah, that, that's pretty much uh, was the appeal. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that you, you interviewed Lou Reed three times. I remember when I was on MTV and a Lou Reed interview came up and the boss of MTV, who was a fan of Lou Reed, said, you're not doing it, I'm doing it, he's really difficult, which was the first time I heard that he had this, I mean, almost <laughs> explosive reputation. Um, how was he to you and how did you deal with him in those interviews? Because the first interview, you were a newbie in a lot of ways, weren't you? Yeah, he was difficult. Yeah, he lived up to the myth. Um, the first one was, yes, yeah, about the fifth or sixth interview I ever did in uh, the mid 80s. I, they sent me along, you know, the, the cub reporter, which is a bit, you know, silly with hindsight. But I went along and I was a big fan and I was prepared. And it started okay at Claridge's Hotel in uh, London, which is a Swiss hotel, uh, for those who don't know. Um, and it was fine, although it was quite a dark room. And he, I'm sitting here, he's sitting there, and there was a manager or an agent or someone I wasn't introduced sitting in the corner silently, which is very off-putting. You know, when you do an interview, you want to relate one-on-one -on -one with the interviewee. You don't really want a manager sitting silently overseeing and looking quite stern the whole time. That's quite off-putting, even if they don't say a word. But we, we got on with it, and it was going well for the most part. Uh, the album was The Blue uh, the blue Gun, um, and... Um, the blue mask, sorry, with the track, the gun on it. Um, and then after a while he went, Lou Reed went, 
oh, you started so well, but now your questions are really boring. <laughs> As a cub reporter, I was internally shattered. You know, I was like, oh, no, this is terrible. This is the worst thing that could happen. But we persevered. We got through it. And with hindsight, it toughened me up. And um, he, uh, you know, he, 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 he gave me an anecdote by being Lou Reed. Um, the second time was some years later. And um, he was OK again for the most part, but he does come out with the the occasional snidey line like i said something like are you clean living now he went oh no man i'm smoking a crack pipe as we speak can't you see it you know this sort of heavy sarcasm that he had which is completely unnecessary and rude for, from most interviewees he's just plain rude but with lou reed you kind of like it because that's what you want lou reed to be like so um and he kind of when you're leaving he kind of gives you a wink and a smile to let you know he's you know playing a role he's he said himself in other interviews that sometimes he gets seduced by playing the role of Lou Reed you know he's actually quite a sort of bookish arty guy but he knows this character of Lou Reed that he kind of established in his younger days uh is is kind of what people want you know it's it's kind of uh part of the part of the shtick if you will um, I think a lot of artists detach themselves from their you know um maybe public persona or what they're thought of I mean I remember interviewing Madonna and she one of her answers to her question is what would Madonna say <laughs> you know do you know what I mean so it's like almost like her way of detachment and then finding a way through uh yes. in terms of the artist rather than the human being or like they were speaking the third person about themselves almost yeah yeah absolutely so tell me about Reed's early life you mentioned all the members of the band and I'd like to sort of just look at their early lives Reed had what really seems to be quite a tortured um early life some of it okay but then it became rather tortured can you explain what his life was like as a yeah. growing up it is in a way it's understandable why he's been a bit troubled late in later life or kind of conflicted because he did have a difficult uh youth so he's got, he's got, his family were quite well off you know that wasn't a, you know a poor boy from the streets or whatever but um they were really not into the whole kind of rock and roll culture they were quite old school and, and so forth um then as he grew up he um he had some psychological issues. He had depression and this kind of thing, and uh, and and thought he was homosexual. Now they didn't like this at all, and they sent him for kind of electroshock therapy, which in those days was what the doctor ordered. You know, which is you know amazing to think of now, but um, that's how it was. And so he was sent for this really almost deeply unpleasant, you know, um, electroshock therapy which uh to to make him not gay you know you know which was at the time was received thinking um and plainly he didn't like that one bit you know and that would traumatize any young young person um after that he then he went to syracuse university studied drama and english he was always very bookish he was into poets and books he his tutor was um or his lecturer was delmore schwartz the poet who was a hero of his and and kind of taught him things about being honest in your writing and never selling out. And, you know, these were maxims that he took, kept with him. Um, and uh, he got into books, but he also then at university, he also took a lot of drugs and it was into hedonism and uh, hedonism, hedonism, I hope one pronounces it. Um, but he got into bands. He uh, was in a band for a while with Sterling Morrison. That's where he met Sterling Morrison. And he had a friend called John Tucker who said, my sister plays the drums and brought along Mo Tucker for a while. Eventually she was allowed in, although she was never a great drummer, but she had an amplifier and they needed an <laughs> amplifier. And like many young bands, you know, they have the member who's in there because they've got some equipment you know, or a van or whatever, you know, <laughs> which, uh, which helps. Uh, that was a sort of on-off thing. It was, he, he met John Cale later. Uh, he got a job, moved to New York, got a job, um, working for a kind of record company doing jingles and and kind of sound bites, sound bites um, you know, little bits of incidental music and jingles. And then he, with Kale, who he'd met by this point, did a song called Do the Ostrich under the name The Flamingos, which was a kind of bubblegum pop. Uh, it was kind of a parody of dance crazes. There were a lot of dance crazes around, like do the this, do the mashed potato, whatever, do the twist. So they did a parody one called uh, Do the Flamingo, um, sorry, Do the Ostrich, um, which uh, wasn't, you know, it wasn't a major work of art in itself, but it did bring them together. And uh, Kale, he and Kale then bonded and became friends. Uh, John Kale was quite a contrasting character to, to Lou. He was a well- What was his early life first from Kale? Because he was from Wales and he had a very different 
upbringing to to read. Can you tell me his upbringing? Yes, very, very different. Uh, he was a Welsh miner's son from the Valleys in South Wales, who was a sort of child prodigy at music. He was a, a wonder kid. You know, he he had great musical talent and he won a uh, kind of uh, a scholarship to go to a prestige music school in, in New York and study under, you know, masters of kind of avant-garde and atonal music and, you know, all modern ideas. And so instead of using his natural musical gift in the obvious conventional way he um uh he got deeply into playing with white noise and atonal music and backwards things and all kind of experimental music which uh, clearly you know, that shows itself in in the velvets um and so he and reed were uh, on one level an unlikely pairing because reed was into literature and uh, writing songs whereas kale was into noise and making abstract shapes with sound but in a way it was a great pairing because the, the marriage of the, two, of the two made for what we hear in the Velvet Underground where you have these songs sometimes quite simple lovely songs like Femme Fatale or Sunday Morning but then you have kind of the kale influence where they're messed up a bit or you have um he was he was into I mean he was part of the Fluxus movement wasn't he which was in a sense where um the audience in a sense participated in the development of what the band were playing on stage. Mm. That was, it was more of a sort of corroboration rather than the band playing a song. So it was a slight, it was completely different to where Reed was coming from. Yes, it was, I mean, it, the New York art scene at the time crossed over with the music scene. And so the gigs were more like events, they were happenings. They were really called happenings. You know, it sounds like a, a groovy hippie term now, but they, um, they, they were happenings. Um, and so you'd have kind of deliberately uh, off-putting noise to kind of freak out the audience or shock them. You'd have drugs would be everywhere. You'd have light shows. You'd have kind of uh, what we now call lava lamp, kind of, you know, light, light shows going on and dancers. And um, when, when Andy Warhol came along and saw this, he loved it, of course. And he thought we can cross-fertilize with this or, you know, some say he co-opted it to make himself look cooler, you know. Um, and he kind of, uh, he, some say that uh, the Velvet Underground with the darkness and Andy Warhol brought light and heat to that and and popularised them. He was the cool cat around town. And he knew immediately that he could he could popularise them, but they would give him kind of cool, you know, kudos, cool, cool hip credit. So he kind of, he asked if he could manage them. He was never, but not a manager at all. He had no business sense, but his, his you know, his right-hand men, like Paul Morrissey and so forth helped. Um, so the, that coming together of the two was really what made it happen. And, and they were then introduced to the kind of the New York scene, the, the moneyed art scene. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he they, they were dubious at first. I mean, Lou Reed was particularly dubious. Do we want this guy kind of managing us? But again, money and equipment and bookings and, you know, publicity, it's hard to resist even for, you know, in, for such alternative types as the, as the Velvet Underground. They, the exposure did them no harm, certainly at first. Um, well, going back to Kale and Reed, because you mentioned that, they, you know, they really had their differences after a while. But the what at the beginning, what do you think connected to them and what really separated them? Hmm. I think love of music, the, real, the realisation that they were doing something good, they would hear what they'd done. And even though on paper they were almost opposites or messing messing up what each other's ideas were. They, they, what came out of it were these strange original sounds and songs. Um, so I think, as I say, when you, if you had a, a lovely song like uh, Femme Patel or Sunday Morning, Kale will put little things in there that made it, gave it an undercurrent of weirdness. And then if it was a more full on thrashy number, uh, you know, you get something like The Gift or Sister Ray, where it's very much Kale's leading the charge. Um, and wants to kind of, they wanted to do away with the kind of peace and love hippie. They were both united on that. They were kindred brothers on that. Um, they they didn't like the whole peace and love West Coast thing. They wanted to do an East Coast thing. They wanted to do a, a New York thing, not a not an LA mamas and papas, you know, carrying daisies around. They they didn't want that. They they preferred the idea of kind of the New York violent undercurrent or the seedy underbelly. And Reed had read a lot of books by, for example, Nelson Algren, you know, who wrote Walk on the Wild Side or um, Hubert Selby, Last Exit to Brooklyn. 
and these literary influences came in from his side. Kell was impressed with that. He liked that. Um, and they're both young men as well who just kind of enjoyed being on the New York scene. You know, they they went out with, sometimes they went out with the same girlfriend after each other. There was this kind of bonding or, you know, at least they're in the same milieu uh, going on. Um, so, uh, yeah, they, they they felt it building, they felt it happening. And, and as young men, they, this was quite an exciting time for them. And then, of course, when Warhol made it bigger and gave it more exposure, then it was very much a hold on tight and see where this this uh, this horse takes us. Um, it, as it happened, it didn't last that long in, in that form because uh, Kale after two albums was, was gone um, and Warhol went and, and you know, Nico went and Edie Cedric died, you know, it all fell apart eventually. But while it was happening, it was a, a roller coaster and a, a thrill ride, I'm sure. I mean, it must have been challenging exhausting there was a lot of speed you know you know they're often very very tired going for, for days without sleep which comes through in the lyrics that kind of thing um but to look back on i mean what a time and what what great work came out of it were they completely enamored by warhol's group you know the factory uh people that he was you know he had there um was that also a, a great allure for them I think so. Yes, I mean it must have been quite a scene, you know. I mean it must have been what, what is this? <laughs> I mean to go to the factory, the silver walled factory, with the characters there, like Billy Name, the photographer who had put the silver on the walls and was was you know his photos still pretty much document most of that time, um, and then the factory with all these strange characters. Edie Cedric was the kind of the the the, the glamorous you know uh, girl who everyone was in love with at the time, the it girl. Um, although she came to a sorry end. Um, and then there were all these kind of characters, uh, you know, transsexuals, gay people that were kind of part of Warhol's scene, uh, Hollywood Lawn, Viva. Uh, people that ended up in Lou Reed's songs, of course, as well. Yes. You know, yeah, Walk well, on the Wild Side. Documented a lot of that, yeah. yeah. So how did Nico come to be in the, in the band? Because I live in Cologne, this is where I am at the moment, um, and she was born here, although she... Uh, was taken by her parents to uh, um, just outside Berlin, Spreewald, um, and brought up there. How did she get to the band? And also, how was it, how difficult is it to know what the truth is about her and her life? Yeah, there's a lot of mythology, uh, some of which she nurtured, and she told different tales at different times. Uh, so did Warhol. So, yeah, it's hard to say definitively, you know, with the, each chapter of her life. But among among the, the verified facts are the fact that she was in Fellini's La Dolce Vita. She was a model, a successful model. Uh, her family background was very strange and, and weird. There's, you know, some stories that she perpetuated that her father was abusive or, or you know, there's... Uh, but didn't she, she said that she went to court? Yes. Was, was it as well. And so <laughs> something that that you say in the book can't be verified because the records uh, aren't there anymore. But there were other stories also that, um, uh, who was supposed to be the father of her son? Uh, yeah, some say Alain Delon. Um... <laughs> Others say that was just the answer she gave because that was a glamorous answer to give, although she had had a romance with him. Um, there were a lot of unverifiable, unknown unknowns. Um, and also that her parents were the owner of a brewery in Cologne. I mean, a famous brewery in Cologne yeah. is the Pefkin Brewery, which of course is her surname, Krista Pefkin. So it's either true or it's something that is a clever lie to sort of <laughs> right, right. <laughs> to make it look like it's true. What what sort of person was she when when she got into the band and, and it was through Warhol, wasn't it, that she yes. came in? Yeah, she was she was a model. She was stunning, apparently. You know, very eye catching, and uh, well, the photos document that. Um, and Warhol took to her kind of as a as a new member of his scene. You know, bring bring her in as one of his new it people. Um, and then he it was his idea to add her to the band. Um, he just thought she'd be great on stage. Just people loved looking at her. She had a very distinctive voice. You either love it or hate it. That low, low kind of rumble of a of a voice, like a, a train's coming down the tracks. Um, she uh, 
she kind of went along with it. She said, oh, yeah, I want to be famous, so, so we'll try this. But Lou Reed didn't want it at all at first. He was the front man in you know, his mind. He, his, his, he was a singer. He was a front man. And why would they want another another singer? And plus, she drew attention away from him. You know, why would why would he want that? His, his ego was bruised by that. And she did on the stage. But I think after a while, a few gigs, he realised that it was, a, it was a plus. It was a great addition to to what people were looking at on stage, uh, that she was very, very charismatic and enigmatic. And um, it made the show better, at least for a short while. It couldn't last because eventually Reed was wanna say, no, I'm the main man, I'm front and center. I, you're all looking at her, I want you to look at me. you know. But then of course, this is further complicated by Reed having an affair with Nico for a brief while. Um, and then Kale, I can't remember which way around it was now, but Kale had a brief affair with Nico as well. So they're all kind of these entanglements of uh, of love affairs, which, uh, you know, which eventually led to rows and breakups. So that doesn't help the dynamic of the band. Um, but her contribution on that first album, for sure, is just, uh, it's such a key part of it. You know, that as a listening experience, you get these voices, you get Reed's voice, and then you get Nico's incredibly distinctive voice. So it, it worked by perhaps accident rather than design. You know, Warhol was not a music person, really. He, he liked hanging out, being part of the cool scene. But, you know, the, in the same way that the, the debut album says produced by Andy Warhol, he didn't actually produce it. You know, it's, it was kind of a marketing device. Um, and it, he wasn't technically a very good manager either. He made a bit of a hash of it. But, uh, but his ideas as an idea person, uh, Nico being one of them, seem to seem seem to um yield great great results yeah. i mean you've touched on some elements but what was it about their music and lyrics that was new just the subject matter really uh reed was going into areas that uh were were real you know his 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 literature studies had made him want to write real things yes i want you know, none of this flowery nonsense uh let's write about the real the streets, the gutters of New York. He hadn't at first experienced New York that much when he was writing them. He was writing them as a kind of fanboy of New York and what he imagined it, it would be like uh, from, from films and books and so on. But then as he kind of got into the drug scene of New York himself and the factory, he had a wealth of material to then draw from. Um, so, you know, drugs, sex, violence, all these things had not were not normally in pop song lyrics at that time. Now they're commonplace. Now, you know, the influence has been so great that, uh, you know, rock music became the place where you discuss those themes, wrote about those themes. But Reed and the Velvets were among the very first to dare to go there. So at the time it was shocking, it was startling. It wasn't the kind of thing the radio were gonna play. Um, but that very fact, drew their increasing fan club towards them. They were like, wow, this is dark. This is, you know, deep. This is uh, fascinating. And the reverberations, you know, going to the classic line of Eno saying, not many people bought the Velvet Underground album, but all those that did formed a band. It's a bit like that. The ripples have gone ever, ever since. And rock music from then, its vocabulary was expanded. It became broader. And then every dark rock band who worth their salt who wanted to be seen as dark and mysterious writes about sex drugs and violence you know so <coughs> excuse me so um the uh, the influence was incalculable hey y'all i'm kiki palmer i'm an actress a singer an entrepreneur and a virgo just to name a few i'm proud to introduce you to the baby this is kiki palmer podcast exclusively on amazon music I'm putting my friends, family, and some of the dopest experts in the hot seat to ask them the questions that have been burning in my mind. What happened to sitcoms? It's OnlyFans, only that. I want to know, so I asked my mom about it. On Baby This Is Kiki Palmer, no topic is off limits. Listen to Baby This Is Kiki Palmer exclusively on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app now. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I mean, you know, the the, the influence from the music was incalculable, but even um, the cover was completely iconic, wasn't it? Yeah, Warhol's Banana. Um, yes, which has a kind of lewd suggestion, even lewder than it actually is, you know, just kind of make, it makes you think, have I got a dirty mind or is that rude? You know, but it was at the time, peel, a small limited edition were peelable bananas. Uh, he did the stone sticky fingers, which is, you know, heavy, heavily suggestive later on, of course. But um, yeah, it was. And, and I think the, uh, 
the other covers are kind of dark and actually not what you'd call good record covers, possibly with the exception of Loaded, but they're too dark. You know, the really name photographs, are ter they're terrible covers, but the, but the Velvet Underground Nico one, which made the big impact, is one of the most iconic, iconic, such an overused word, but one of the most iconic record sleeves ever, probably, and um, gave a hint of this world, this dark world that was within, like, like the cover of a book might suggest what's within it, or the trailer for a film. It kind of made you think, uh, what's in here? I want to investigate this. Uh, I shouldn't, but I'm, I'm tempted, I'm drawn to this subversive planet. <laughs> I mean, they had, there was this nihilistic attitude, of course, which came up with uh, punk and has been, you know, in lots of genres of music uh, since. But one thing that really caught my eye in your book was uh, a review from the Los Angeles Times about a live show where they said, not since the Titanic run into that iceberg has there been such a collision. For once a happening really happened. <laughs> and it completely made me laugh. And it really sort of sums up what you said about, about their, their live shows. Were they absolutely chaotic? And how did the audience react? Yeah, they became more chaotic and pandemonium as they went along. In fact, they nurtured that when they realised the shock and horror of some of their early audiences. Because at first, of course, it, we, we, we're so, we take for granted now that gigs and, and, and records happen. But in those days, it was more, you, you had to get a booking where you could kind of thing. And so they would play these completely incongruous, inappropriate places like, you know, um, uh, conferences for psychotherapists or which i think that initial one was the most inappropriate place to barrage the you know the suited audience who were having a nice you know scampion champagne or whatever they were having um with with a barrage of white noise uh, but then and then when the warhol came along and they had the uptight show at first which evolved into the uh exploding inevitable um uh, they uh, had dancers, they had Gerard Malanga and Edie Cedric on stage, being very sort of thrusting and sexual. Uh, they had light show, which for the time were, they look primitive now, but for the time they were state of the art and quite sort of, you know, loopy and, hey man, that's crazy, you know. Um, and uh, you had this barrage of noise, you had, they were all wearing black and usually wearing sunglasses. And again, that they were the first to do that and the influence of you know bands wearing black and and, and wearing shades that so many have copied that you know for, for, for decades um it's become the, the signifier of cool um and then you had nico who was charismatic as well of course and um yeah it was it was not an easy listen it was um it was art it was and then when warhol got on board it was presented as art which which kind of sold it to the to the doubters. They're like, "Oh, it's art. Okay, I like this noise. You know, I, I don't mind that I'm not hearing pretty tunes." Um, again, the, another irony being that, of course, there are some pretty tunes on the records. You know, with uh, Sunday Morning, Femme Fatale. But, um, there are several Pale Blue Eyes later on. Uh, Reed could write a pretty tune and and did, um, but for the time being, the live shows were were in your face, to to say the least. <laughs> did did they enjoy the? negative reaction because i remember seeing um uh, or uh, presenting in cologne once so uh, a film from anthony bauchi about william burroughs which is where he just says hello hundreds and hundreds of times and it starts off where you you know you find it at first it's funny and then it starts to irritate and then you just want to explode and like people in the audience were just walking out and and i remember like that the people that put that on, you know, including me, thought of that as a success because half the audience actually left. And I just wondered whether it, for them, the experience of getting a reaction, such a hardcore reaction, because audiences would leave, wouldn't they, at the, at the beginning? Yeah, yeah, certainly at the beginning. Um, so yeah, that maybe that would be considered, as you say, that as a success. Yeah, uh, job done. Uh, yeah, alienation achieved. Um, we've wound them up. We've provoked provocateurs. Yeah, provocateurs. Um, I think as it developed and the kind of the art, art scene got into it and the cool hipsters of New York got into it, then maybe it eventually became more accessible a little bit. They still would have dancers and lights and so on, but there was a, perhaps more of an adherence to to the more melodic numbers or the more straightforward rock numbers, waiting for the man. I mean, there's nothing difficult. Well, it's aggressive, but it's not difficult per se. Um, so I think this part of the reason that Kale drifted away or, or that he thought it was getting too, Reed wanted to sell rap, Reed wanted to be a star. So I think maybe Kale was 
put off by he thought he was getting too commercial which again everything's relative it wasn't commercial but but by by kale standards he wanted to do more of the provocation sheer provocation for the sake of provocation and and hurt people's ears whereas reeves was thinking oh, we've got some songs here we could be a rock band we could be successful we could make an album we could you know uh do something with this so valid as both viewpoints are that was part of the reason for kale leaving and, and, and Reed's ego was getting out of hand. I mean, Kale's ego was was huge at the time as well. They were, you know, both egotistical. But um, yeah, that part of the reason perhaps was that uh, the classic musical differences, the classic kind of Reed thought we could get bigger and we could be, uh, you know, the Velvet Underground could be a band per se rather than a kind of a, an event. We could be a band and have have hit, not maybe not hits, but, you know, his album. Whereas Kale wasn't interested in that at that stage at all. So. I mean, you described the characters as extremely headstrong. Um, was the actual breakup in any way? Did it did it sort of result in any form of violence? Was it was it really was it physical at any time? I think there's some pushing and shoving went on by some accounts. Um, I don't think you know they're both quite fey arty boys, really. You know, under under the take away the shades and the glasses, and like like most guys in rock bands, they you know then they'd run a mile if a, you know if a boxer or a wrestler came up to them. You know, these so called tough guys, but um, they uh, they fell out profoundly they were just were not getting on um that reed reed by all accounts was the most difficult person in the world at this stage for a year or two was just impossible to get on with was speeding all the time addicted to speed uh up his own backside with his ego thought you know he wanted to be the man uh kale was never going to play second fiddle to, to anyone really you know kale is a major talent in his own in his own right um so at the time and again they were young remember and you know kale probably thought well go on and be in another band you know this is one band and it hasn't been successful yet he wasn't to know at that stage the the sort of slow burn success that the the velvets would would have um so reed wanted his band and hence hence getting doug yule in as a kind of who would do whatever he, reed told him to and um try you know the album's kind of mellowing a bit and going more kind of tuneful um, again, they're very good. They get stick, but they're very good. Those, you know, the read melodic songs, the kind of pale blue eyes era. Um, but yeah, Kale wanted to do more experimental music, and of course, was very successful. You know, a great producer. Everyone from Patti Smith to, to Happy Mondays, um, and has made very interesting records himself. Um, do, do you think the other three albums from from Velvet Underground? I know you've you've touched on them during this conversation with with mentioning some of the tracks that come from them. But the first album is the one that's lauded and praised, and everyone says is the the, the best album. Um, how do you view the other three albums, and how do you think they've stood the test of time? Yeah, I think they deserve more credit than they're given. Really, I think the first one is such a, a monolith that it overshadows the others. Um, there's a point almost where for me, it's almost too familiar now. You know, I've heard those songs so many times that sometimes you, you kind of squeeze an album dry for yourself to listen to and you have to leave it a year. It's the same for me with you know, albums I love, like Ziggy Stardust or something. I'm just so over-familiar with it. I have to leave it a year and then it's fresh again. Um, so for, perhaps it's just for me, but with that one, I feel a bit like that. Then with the second one, um, White Light, White Heat, I think there are some great tracks. There are some things that don't quite work, perhaps. Um, I think it's the gift is it, if I'm not getting mixed up is on there and uh, which is just kind of hard to listen to it's noise it's Kale's Kale's baby um, but you've got some great songs on there and um, it's uh, it, White Light White Heat itself is uh, is full of venom and passion and really bangs through you know I think, I think a lot of people I first came across uh, the Velvet through Bowie covering uh, waiting for the man and, and white light white heat you know so that was kind of my oh who's it who the velvet underground that my hero david bowie is, is covering then so i got into it like a lot of british kids probably got into it through there different if you're american i suppose but um uh then the third album is underrated yeah it has uh pale blue eyes and um what goes on is a really really good number um then the fourth one loaded is it's sweeter it's less nasty um but again some good moments and i think people kind of tend to dismiss it too too easily i kind of sometimes make an argument even for squeeze which was the fifth album which dog yule did keeping the name alive which everyone unilaterally thinks is rubbish but i think i was trying too hard there and it actually might be rubbish so <laughs> without once reed had gone you know it was not you know there was no real element of the of the velvet's essence left uh, i mean the book also covers reed's 
um, career, um, you know, afterwards, which is something that obviously has uh, fascinated you because you've interviewed him three times and and uh, and you clearly really appreciate uh, his his talent. Um, he's another one that, you know, and you mentioned that earlier that, you know, of course, Transformer was his biggest album and then came, what was it, the second one, which I bought as well? Berlin, yeah, then came Berlin. And then after that, I mean, he had a you know huge career still, yeah. um, but after that, they were the, the they were seen as sort of the stalwarts of his solo career, as with Velvet Underground, the f- the first album. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you see his own personal legacy on music? Mm. I think he's been a huge influence. I think a lot of uh, you could look at any cool indie band in the 80s and 90s and they all wanted to be him you know the singer wanted to be Lou Reed basically whether it was you know the dark clothes that shades or just the attitude you know of like I'm the man and I'm gonna you know tell it like I see it um I think Transformer was you know the most successful because of the Bowie product and Mick Ronson production and great songs like Walk on the Wild Side was an unlikely hit uh, and, and Satellite of Love and Perfect Day which again came back and was even a BBC Children in Need song 20 odd years later, which you would never have kind of predicted. Um, but uh, Berlin was his great magnum opus. Now he thought Berlin was going to be the big one. Transformer had been a hit. He believed so deeply in Berlin. If it, For those that don't know, it's a really dark, depressing, miserable, epic album produced by Bob Ezrin, who did some Pink Floyd and The Wall and, and so forth. And um, it's re- it really is dark and depressing, but it's, I think it's magnificent. It's a brilliant work of art, I think. But the critics hated it and it kind of it derailed his solo career, at least temporarily. And he was always a bit bitter afterwards because he thought that was his major, his great American novel. You know, he thought that was the one. So I would recommend Berlin to anyone who hasn't heard it and who, who's got, you know, a thick skin for depressing music. Um, so well, it's one of those albums that you need to listen to a number of times before yeah. you even get into it, isn't it? So I think that's probably why the instant reaction um, was different. Yeah. Um, yeah, in terms of John Cale, I mean, uh, he's uh, been a completely inventive, uh, interesting uh, character over the years. So yeah. where is he and what's his legacy? Yeah, I think um, he's the musician's velvet. He, he's like anyone who plays an instrument will say he was the main velvet's man. You know, like those of us that love words we will kind of gravitate towards Reed. The people who actually play instruments with it. To any high quality will say oh you oh john cale was the man you know he he his talent was off the charts um and he a bit like a painter who could quite easily paint a, a you know picasso could paint a very perfectly normal landscape or, or or face but chose not to he chose to do abstract stuff because he was bored to do he was so good that he wanted to do something break down premises and start new dialogues. Kale was that good, you know, he could, he, he invented all this new musical vocabulary, I suppose. Uh, musicians would understand it better than I would, you know, about, uh, uh, you know, key, changing keys around and and atonal, this and that, so it's not my not my field, but uh, he, he, he was a pioneer. And of course his career itself, he's never had that big breakthrough kind of transformer walk in the wild side hit to make him a household name, I suppose. Um, but you know, 90% of his albums have been very well re- re- received and respected. Um, he's, his work with Eno, his work with, as a producer, as I say, he produced Horses by Patti Smith. Uh, later on, worked with Happy Mondays uh, in, a, in another era, you know, which showed, shows he was surviving through different eras of, of music. Um, and he's, he's, he's been touring this year. Unfortunately, the tour of the UK has been postponed because one of the Group has got COVID, so they've had to cancel a few dates very recently. I was going to go, and uh, that's been postponed um, for a few months. But yeah, I know he's been very disappointed about about that because the shows were going really well, apparently. So at the ripe age of I think he's eighty now or thereabouts, this, uh, he's still touring and you know still looks very vital and useful and playing, making good records. He's the same age as Tom Jones, which always throws me. That, you know, these two Welshmen who've gone down completely different paths. They're both eighty. You know, Tom is great at what he does. Good luck to him. But it's such a different path to this, you know, this kind of mainstream showbiz entertainer to this kind of weird New York adjacent, dark, you know, enigmatic character. And they're both born in the same year in Wales. It's, you know, different strokes, different folks, I suppose. And the last time the Underground performed together, 
um, was when Sterling Morrison died and it was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I believe. What was that performance and what was that reunion, if I'm allowed to call it that, like for the members in the band? Yeah, the shows before, I think that one went okay because they were all grown up enough to respect Sterling and do it, you know, let's let's show some dignity here, guys. Let's not bicker. It's, you know, in honour of the Sterling who passed away. Um, but the reunions in general, like this kind of the, the festivals and the, the supporting U2 and the kind of early 90s um, shows, I, I didn't catch one myself, but people that did said it was a bit lacklustre. You know, most people, the majority say it was quite lacklustre. It was great to say I've seen the Velvet Underground, but it wasn't really the spirit of the Velvets. It was a little, again, you know, they fell out because Reed and Kale couldn't see eye to eye again, having agreed to do it they, and made an album together, some for, for Drella in honour of Andy Warhol, who'd also passed. Uh, they... Uh, you know, it was ego really. Reed thought that Kale wanted to be the boss. Kale thought that Reed wanted to be the boss. They couldn't hack it. And by this point, of course, they'd both been in charge of their own careers, you know, autonomous for so long that it was harder to compromise. Um, so, yeah, I think Kale said, I'm not going to be a backing member in a, in a Lou Reed band. It's not, that's not what the Velvet Underground are about. And the, the music was a little cautious, apparently, in those shows. It was, um, you know the, the the white noise elements were a bit tokenistic it wasn't really it was a bit like a kind of watered down theme park version of the velvet underground by then and maybe it would be best if the legacy hadn't been you know re revisited or, or or tarnished in that way um it probably i mean hey it probably sold some back catalog so maybe financially it worked but um I think the mythology was a little diluted by seeing them as older men and uh, not quite cutting it perhaps now, at the beginning, you know, you mentioned um, that you'd interview Lou Reed three times. You also had a brush <laughs> with Nico, didn't you? Well, yeah, I didn't interview her, but I accidentally, uh, a kind of a, a bathos rather than pathos anecdote. Um, I was backstage, my only time I met her, I was backstage at a Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks gig in Manchester when he was solo, chatting away drunkenly to whoever, probably... Steve Diggle or someone and um and this voice is epic you know sonorous voice uh, behind me said get up you are sitting on my coat and uh, I looked and there was Nico I was I was sitting on a coat fair enough so I kind of leapt up intimidated by this statuesque you know goddess and said very sorry and that was it she lost you know she didn't say another word she just made her instruction you know you will obey my command and you know I, I leapt up and uh, someone said she probably had something she needed in the pockets you know because she was a junkie by that point so that's probably why she very earnestly needed the coat but uh, yeah it was a brush with the star if not exactly you know sit down one hour interview as, as such. <laughs> well mean, what do you think her legacy is then because you know you mentioned this sonorous voice um and her obvious beauty and her performances were a combination of of those elements and more so you know is is there a particular music legacy to nika and what is it i think um Women would say that she was being uniquely herself and unconventional before you, before that was a done thing. Perhaps you know she wasn't conforming to being a six uh, you know a sixties pop singer. You know, smiling in a pretty dress and singing in pretty tunes. So in that alone, she was a major figure. They would say. Um, I think it is a it's a marmite love it or hate it voice. You know, um, to listen to a whole album can be quite. People used to say this about Leonard Cohen, but I think people's ears have attuned differently now and Leonard Cohen sounds like quite a decent singer actually but uh she uh it's one of those voices you kind of yeah it's an acquired taste I think I, I saw her play live in uh let's say the early 80s and um it, she would sit behind you know this massive organ and push out these huge chords that were kind of very church-like and funereal while the band tried to kind of guess where she was going with it um and it was a melancholy experience to watch, you know, the show. It was, it was, you know, there wasn't a lot of dancing. It was uh, kind of like being at church or, you know, almost a funeral, a very doomy music, doomy voice. But again, you're kind of, you're glad you saw it, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a party. Um, and uh, she, she still had charisma, even then in her later years when she wasn't too well and, and so forth. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, the legacy will be, A, as an icon of, of the 60s and that era, the, the Warhol factory, B, as a pioneering woman who 
didn't do what was expected, did her thing, didn't really care if people liked it or not, expressed herself with her voice and didn't conform to any kind of notions of what a woman on stage should do. I mean, in the end, the legacy of the Velvet Underground is, of course, the legacy of five people, including Sterling Morrison and Mo Tucker, um, who uh, obviously had a contribution. Um, can you just finally say what their contribution was really to the band? Because we've left that out totally in this interview. I guess we all overlooked them a bit because, you know, they didn't have the charismatic lifestyles or such. They had, you know, they're relatively sane and normal, you know, and who wants to know about that? But uh, I guess that's what, the, you know, the, the, the trap we've all fallen into, really. But uh, Sterling was a, a the perfect guitarist for that band in that he wasn't, he was, a decent player but he wasn't so talented that he was doing kind of Eric Clapton stuff that would have ruined the whole you know the dynamic of the whole interaction would have fallen apart he, he interacted really intelligently and well with what you know Reed and Kale and so forth were playing um, and it's probably an underrated musician uh, Mo Tucker was not a great drummer it's just that kind of beat but she kept the beat she was very minimalist um, and again if you'd had a snazzy drummer who could really show off and had some licks like, I don't know, Keith Moon or someone, again, that it wouldn't be the Velvets. It, it would upset the apple cart completely and it would all be unbalanced. You know, we had, this we had this lovely serendipity where everything just gelled with each other and her minimalism kind of worked perfectly because there's so much going on in the words and in the sounds that Kale was, was throwing in. Uh, so kind of a minimalist backbeat, just keeping it there, was, was perfect for that. For that, for the events they were they, they were making happen. Um, again, it was a woman in a band before that was normalised. I suppose you know. So again, uh, a pioneer in that degree. Uh, not yeah, not a great musician by any 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 shape shape, shape or form. But um, but perfect for that band for that entity. And so you know, we probably wouldn't be listening to those Velvet albums now if they had a, a first rate session musician playing the drums on them it just wouldn't have the same kind of is it going to fall apart any minute oh no they've just about kept it together that kind of magic you know and so a key contributor as well yeah. well um chris it's a fascinating story and i i have to say it's beautifully crafted and written and i thoroughly enjoyed uh, the book so chris roberts uh with the velvet underground book thank you thank you very much pleasure